open us in prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather as your people. Pray that you would be in our midst, that your spirit would be the one who opens our eyes to see you more clearly. Thank you for your word that you've entrusted to us. And God, I ask that you would help us to go deep in your word and that we would fall more in love with you as a result. Pray these things. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, last week, by way of review, mm. we talked about Genesis 1 to 3, and we discussed the fact that God is the subject <coughs> of the creation account. And one of the things that we emphasized is that as we were reading through Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, it became more and more apparent that God as creator means that he is the source of all life and the sustainer of all life. As we went through chapter 1 in particular, we saw that God created three realms, the sky, the earth, and the sea. And then he populates each of those realms with life. So he is the one who is the source of life, he sustains it, and we also looked at the fact that God created humans, male and female, in his image. And even though these terms, image and likeness, are a bit debated, they likely are synonymous terms that emphasize divine authority. So that back in the day when a king was not present physically in a part of his realm, he would erect an image or a likeness of himself to be his representative in his absence. So it seems that the writer of Genesis is emphasizing this as God's intent for humanity is to be his representatives, to represent his authority on the earth and among the creatures. An important point about the creation account that we discussed is that there's no indication of a cosmic struggle. A lot of the creation myths from the people groups around Israel at the time involved the clash of different deities. And as these deities were in battle with one another, this is how the earth was formed, and the seas were formed, and people were formed. And we see none of that in Genesis uh, 1, to 1 and 2. Rather, God speaks, and by his word, everything is created. We're also told that God declares that all that he has made is good. And that this really gives us an indication of the character of God himself. He has spoken, things are created, these things are good. So that is a reflection of who he is, that God is good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. Now when we move into chapter 2, the writer of Genesis moves from a general account in chapter 1 to an account in chapter 2 that is more specific, taking elements of the more general description of creation in chapter 1 and focusing in on specific elements of that creation story. Particularly the man that God creates and his relationship with God, with his work, with the creation, and with the woman, his partner. And what we see portrayed in chapter 2 are harmonious relationships on all those levels. But then we got to chapter 3, and the serpent was introduced. The serpent questions what? What does he question to the woman? God's authority. God's words to the woman. God didn't really say this. And through the course of that interaction, we discover that 
the woman chooses to believe the word of the serpent of the serpent rather than the word of God. And that she then gives the fruit to Adam and he eats of it. And again, Adam turns from the word of God and believes the, the word of the serpent and acts on that. And when those things happen, all of the harmonious relationships that we identified from chapter 2 are disrupted. And there's strife that enters the picture. And when we get to chap, uh, verses 14 to 19 in chapter 3 of Genesis, we find out that the serpent and the ground are cursed, but not really the man and the woman. The man and the woman experience consequences, but they're not cursed. The consequences, in part, are painful labor now in bringing forth life and difficult labor in what else? Work, working the ground, sustaining life. So those two elements that we are to reflect as God's image, the creation of life, procreation of life, and sustaining of life are now going to be in the context of painful struggle and toil. That's part of the the consequence. But in the midst of that, we also said there's hope of redemption too, didn't we? In chapter, in chapter 3, verse 15, God makes reference to the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Even though the serpent will nip at the heel of the offspring, the offspring will crush the head of the serpent. So already we get a picture in Genesis 3 that the creator, the one who is the source and sustainer of life, is also going to be the redeemer. When sin enters the picture, when death is introduced, it is the creator who will become the redeemer and the savior to be able to restore the life that he has created. So now we'll get into the rest of Genesis. We'll pick up there, the first point in your outline talks about the, the need for redemption pretty much unfolding <laughs> from Genesis 3 forward. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, we read, beginning in verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Pretty grim. <laughs> verse 6 says, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe Mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air. So there we have the three realms of creation being referred to, and the creatures that live there in each one. For I am grieved that I have made them. But, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. So now we have humanity has declined and declined and declined to the point in, in chapter 6 of Genesis that God is heartbroken by all the evil that he sees and he regrets that he ever made us. Doesn't get much worse than that. But we've got Noah, a righteous man who walks with God. So all of us I think are probably pretty familiar with the flood accounts. Noah builds the ark according to God's command, brings the creatures on board and a few of his family members. They ride out the flood. And after the flood in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, it says, God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, 
Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? So what we see happening after the flood, that God is, in a sense, kind of reinstating much of what was said to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. Again, that humanity is blessed and to be, and they are to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread in verse 2 of chapter 9, Genesis 9, the fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth, the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. So even this aspect of what God is saying harkens back to Genesis 1 and 2. And the authority over creation that humans are to have. Everything that moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. Then God makes a covenant with Noah and his descendants and with every living creature in verse 11. It says, never again, God says, never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay, so my question here is, in what sense was the earth destroyed? When the waters receded, was the earth still there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And plants, too. And plants. So, in what sense was the earth destroyed? That most of the land was it. It was flooded. It was flooded big time. Humans. I mean, humans died. The, the evil. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it was really focused on humanity. And I think the sense in which the earth was destroyed was really. Dis- Again, if we think back to Genesis 1 and 2, it was no longer a habitable place for humanity. It was covered in water. So when you think about Genesis 1, do you remember how we talked about God separated the waters above and below, separated the waters below and revealed the land, and then put plants to grow in the earth, and it was those plants that people would eat to sustain the life that he has given them. Well, with the flood, all that was covered over. The habitable environment created for humanity was no longer there. So it wasn't annihilation of the earth. But I think it it goes back to this idea of the earth that was meant to sustain us and give us life was demolished, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I bring this up is because in week six, we're going to be talking about 2 Peter 3. And in 2 Peter 3, we have the imagery that in the day of the Lord, what will happen to the earth and the heavens? The earth will be destroyed not by water, but by fire. So again, the idea of, does that mean annihilation of the earth? Well, when we look at 2 Peter, we'll talk more about this. But in 2 Peter... the flood account is made reference to. So again, we talked last week about the fact that there's a grand narrative of Scripture. There is a story that goes from Genesis to Revelation. So there is some continuity there. There are discontinuities as well. But I think this is part of that element of the grand story as we're looking at God as creator of heaven and earth. And it's the one who created the heavens and the earth 
who has total control over everything. So whether it's a flood or it's fire, he is the one who gives life and he sustains it. War and punishment will uh, hold back on some of that. Uh, that, that <coughs> which will, well, we'll hold off on talking more about that when we get to it. Are, we, are you hold, wanting us to hold questions, or how do you want to do this? So we can field some questions. Okay. No, I mean, one thing I never thought about before until this minute is I'm, is that, you know, when Noah, is, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but so before the flood, I mean, there were also, there were people and there were animals. And, there, and now we're talking about how there was land and there was plant life and there was... There were things to support life, mm-hmm. and I guess I, so. I guess I never really thought about that. I was kind of thinking previously that maybe there was like dinosaurs and stuff, <laughs> you know, before the flood. But I don't think so. I mean, there was actually identifiable animals before the flood. I mean, because because Noah put them on the ark, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's your real question? So no, so I'm thinking. No, I, I guess this this happened this happened really after all that because I mean we see dinosaur bones and all that right mm-hmm. so that came upon <coughs> that was part of the earth at some point mm-hmm. but just before long before that right well I mean we don't that's really know probably not not a topic that um, that will cover exhaustively here. I mean, there are remains of dinosaurs. I don't have any problem with believing that they did exist, and probably before the flood. And then maybe not... Well, yeah, I mean, that's... that's I guess in my mind, I'm just trying to put all this stuff together. But yeah, what we have is in Genesis 1 and 2, that God has created all these creatures, and they're being repeated here in Noah's time also, after the flood. The reference to the beasts of the earth, the birds of the air, the creatures that move along the ground, and the fish of the sea. All, so it's all three of these realms, and all of them are populated with life. What exactly those life forms are, we don't have the specifics about it. Well, Joe talked about Leviathan, mm-hmm. yep. which would have been probably a form of a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And we know that the animals that exist today must have existed after the flood because Noah preserved them, right? So the mm-hmm. ans- the animals we see today are probably because of... Had some ancestors yeah. that were on the... Henry Murray said, uh, in the Dresden of Canaan, he said, uh, the, the air before the flood was more like a tropical forest, more mm-hmm. like a mass metal. It's never been before, it's like a kind of... Pro- Mm-hmm. And after and the mess and a little mess and the mess like a tropical forest is. And after the flow was there com- changed completely. That's why Kevin Murray said. I don't know. This is, that's yeah, again we're kind of going a little beyond the text that I want us to focus on here. But but what I'm trying to do is move us through some key points <coughs> on the grand narrative to show how this description of God's a creator of as creator of heaven and earth is showing up at some critical points in the narrative. So these are interesting questions. I'm afraid we're not going to have time to really discuss them in depth now. But as we look at what happens in Genesis 
food. But when they get to Egypt, Abram is afraid. And if you know the story well, and again, we don't have time to go into the details of it, he is afraid that Sarai is so beautiful, someone in Egypt, if, he, if they think that their husband and wife, they're going to kill Abram and snatch Sarai for himself. So they concoct this plan to pass off Sarai as Abram's sister rather than his wife. Well, and then sure enough, who is the fellow who gets bowled over when he sees Sarai? Pharaoh. None other than the, the most powerful man in the country. And sure enough, Sarai is taken from Abram. Again, we don't have time. It's a great story. We don't have time to go into it. But in the course of the story, God intervenes in a powerful way. And Sarai is restored to Abram. Abram and Sarai and everybody who's traveling with them, we find out Lot is with them at this point, um, the nephew of Abram. They return to the Negev with more than they even came with. So even though it looks like Abram's not really trusting the Lord, he's afraid, he's coming up with a plan to save his skin, which could be understandable in some levels, God still intervenes. And because this story falls directly on the heels of verses 1 through 3, where God said what to Abram? 1 through 3, great nation. Yes. So he needs Sarai to make that great nation. And what else? God says he will bless those who bless you and he will curse those who dishonor you. Pharaoh didn't even know. It wasn't his fault that Abram lied to him. But God still intervened. And so I think this story is really more about God revealing his faithfulness to follow through on his promises, even when the people involved, Abram and Sarai, falter. God is still faithful. He is still going to carry out his promises. I will make of thee a great Yes. He's going to do it. And, and so, remember, too, this is at the very beginning of Abram's encounter with God. So, again, the fact that God is revealing himself as one who keeps his promise and will take action to do so, I think is very significant. Now, what we see happen when we get to chapter 14, I think is also a critical juncture in the story. When we move on from chapter 12 into 13, Lot, I said again, is with Abram and Sarai. They go into the land. Once they're in the land, Lot and Abram decide to part ways. You may recall this. And Lot goes one direction. Abram gets another. So Abram gets what area? And what does Lot get? Which is near the city of Sodom. So what we find out in chapter 14, there's a war going on between nine different kings. Five on one side, four on the other. The king of Sodom is in the mix. Lot gets caught in the crossfire, so to speak. When Sodom is raided, Lot and his possessions, is, they're taken away by the, the enemy. When Abram finds out, what does he do? He mobilizes what is it, just over 300 of his men and goes after this king to get his nephew back and all of his possessions. And then it actually happens. He actually wins and defeats the kings and brings back Lot and other people along with them. And when he does, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek 
go to meet with Abram. And this is an interesting encounter. If you turn with me to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, and we'll pick it up. In verse 17, or 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now where is Salem? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's a shortened form of Jerusalem. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, who? Creator of heaven and earth. Some translations have possessor of heaven and earth. And the term there encompasses that idea as well. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then what does Abram do? He gives him a tenth of everything. So in a sense, what Abram is doing is affirming what Melchizedek has just proclaimed. And because he's a priest's king, it, it is appropriate and customary to give a tenth of everything he has to Melchizedek. What happens in verse 21, though? The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Which, is again, is not surprising. This is the guy who conquered... And so the king of Sodom is saying, you know what, just give me the people, you keep the goods for yourself. Abram's response is interesting. In verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high. And here we have him using the personal name of God, Lord, as well as the reference to the title God most high, creator of heaven and earth that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. So what is the distinction between these responses? What is Abram basically saying to the king of Sodom? God will provide for me. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. God is my provider. Not yes. Melchizedek has summarized it perfectly. God is the deliverer. God has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram says, yes, that's true. The king of Sodom, again, this was not an inappropriate thing to do, offers to give the riches of the spoil, let Abram have it, and Abram says, no, because God is my provider. And again, when you look at the very next verse, in chapter 15. Sometimes I think it's unfortunate that we have these chapter divisions because we think that the, the scriptures are dramatically separated at this point, and they really aren't because uh, verse 1 of chapter 15 flows right out of what has happened. Verse 1 says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said in verse 2, Sovereign Lord, what can you 
Give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children. The servant in my household will be my heir. So you can see what's foremost on Abram's mind at this point. But God has given him the assurance. It's like the sequel to to Abram's response to the king of Sodom. God is going to be my provider, and God indeed affirms that. Now, Abram still has the question about what, what about my, my inheritance? My, who's so going to be my heir? Who's going to be my heir? So I guess I, we're in the instant. I've got to have it right now, society. Right. So, like we were saying, it wasn't a short or straight line <laughs> that Abram and Sarah walked after that to get to the heir. But this is a, a critical juncture in which we see now from chapter 12. To chapter 14, Abram has gone from what looks like a lack of faith in chapter 12 to now realizing the creator of heaven and earth, this God is the one that I'm aligning myself with. And so I'm I'm suggesting that this understanding of God as creator of heaven and earth is critical. It's foundational to understanding who our God is, the one true and living God. And this is... Again, the description of God that comes at the foundation of the the Abrahamic covenant. Because right after this, in chapter 15, this is where God cuts the covenant with Abraham. And he's not Abraham until chapter 14. So you see there's progression there. And I think it's important to recognize how this description of God fits in. So we've got uh, the point in your notes... Uh, the creator calls Abram, and we hit highlights from, from chapter 12 and 14 and 15. The next point now is the creator's action in the Exodus and his word at Sinai. So if we fast forward in time now to the Exodus, which is jumping over quite a bit, um, but that's what we need to do in my hard time. God has to be faithful to raise up the nation of Israel and the Israelites through a series of events that have ended up in Egypt. Eventually, a king came to power in Egypt and enslaved the Israelites. Again, we don't have time to go into all the details, but I know many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph, how Joseph ended up in Egypt, how his family eventually came down, and Joseph was in power, but after he died, then eventually this king came into power who didn't didn't know about all that. All we knew is that there are these foreign people who are multiplying. (laughs) They're becoming large in number, and he's getting nervous, so he enslaves the Israelites. But God delivered them out of slavery after 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 they lived in Egypt for about 430 years, according to Exodus 12. And they left under the leadership of Moses. And the Exodus is a significant step in the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. God keeps his promises to Abraham and his descendants, and by God's actions, signs and wonders, he rescues Israel and reveals himself as the one true God. So I think something that we don't want to miss is the importance of the whole series of plagues, and I appreciated what Joanne Tischler said on Shabbat about the process. We've got a plague after plague after plague, and God is revealing who he is through his actions in the fulfillment of his words, his promise to be the protector and the rescuer of his people Israel. So that when the Israelites end up leaving Egypt, 
not only the Israelites, but the people around them understand that their God is the one who delivered them. So even when we get to Exodus 18, verses 9 through 11, Jethro, as you know, is a Midianite, the father-in-law of Moses. But verses 9 through 11 tell us what Jethro's response to the Exodus is. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, he said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued from you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, Adonai, is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. So the Exodus now becomes the major paradigm of salvation in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most significant event that occurs when Israel is in the wilderness is the giving of what? God's word at Sinai. So again, what I'm hoping you're picking up is this repetition of God says something and he acts on it. What God says will happen, he carries out. The word of God and his actions go hand in hand. The Exodus is a huge demonstration of God's action of rescue on behalf of Israel, but also in fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. Now we have God the creator of heaven and earth, giving his word to his people Israel in the wilderness. When we again keep fast forwarding through salvation history, when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, where is Israel at this point? Deuteronomy is written when? About what time? Israel has been in the wilderness for 40 years. Now Deuteronomy is opening with the words of Moses. And these are essentially his final words to the people. Because what's going to happen to Moses right before they go into the promised land? He dies. He dies. He knows. God told him. Not a surprise. <laughs> Spoiler alert now. You know, so these are, Moses knows that they're about to enter the land. And these are his final words to the people of Israel. So flip with me to the beginning of Deuteronomy. And we won't, we won't spend a lot of time here, but we're, we're going to focus on chapter 4. In the first three chapters, Moses reviews the history of God's interactions with the people in the wilderness. And chapter 4 is actually the first in a series of sermons. The focus of this chapter is on obedience to the law and maintain, and maintain the covenant with God. So again, what is the law? This is God's word to his people. And so now God's people are to be obedient to his word. They're to, to act on his word. Deuteronomy 4.1 opens with um, the statement, Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them that you may what? Live. That you may live. Again, remember what we were saying about God being the source and sustainer of life. God's desire for us is life. life. That you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, 
is giving you. Jump down to verse 5. See, I have taught you decrees and laws. Again, when I hear decrees and laws, I think these are the words of God. The decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land. Again, take action on what God has said. That you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to whom? The nations. Who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us when we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? So one of the things that, again, I want us to catch here is the, the intimacy of the relationship between God and Israel. I think often when we, we think of God as creator, we think of him as being out there. He is certainly sovereign. But what, we, what, what we're seeing as we go through these different pa- passages highlighting this attribute of who God is, we see that he also cares about his creation. And he's intimately cr- uh, um, concerned about Israel and the special relationship that he has established with her. Yeah. Well, I mean, two things that I'm really connecting to right here, because he says, he, you know, he says, um, I'm, giving you, I'm teaching you this so you may live. What does Yeshua say to us? You know, I'm, I came to give you life and more abundantly. So, I mean, here God gives us life, but Yeshua says more abundantly. And then when we read those just last passages, this could have, I mean, I really feel that there's a number of people who would not agree that of the, you know, greatness of Israel. But then there's a number of us that go, gosh, I mean, I, you read that and I feel like a, I feel like it's just out of the news or something, because I start thinking of all the blessings that Israel has bestowed on the earth, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that God, even, see, again, I, I'm, I'm afraid that when we hear these words, laws and decrees, we think that equals death. Oh, no, you're telling me I have to do this. <laughs> what, don't I have a choice? Well, no, no, no. I think that's our independence... Western American thinking. Don't hem me in. Don't, don't, don't stifle me. Don't tell me what to do. But the words of God are for, for life. They're to, for us to prosper. We're living, when we live by the words of God, we are living in harmony with the one who has created us and who has created everything around us. And that's what we're going to talk more about next week when we look at the wisdom literature and where this description of God as creator of heaven and earth surfaces and what is said about it. So yeah, God God intends for us to have life. But then look at verse 9 as we continue through this passage. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words, 
so that what? They may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. God is concerned that the people would remember their intimate relationship with their creator, with their God, even as they go into the land. And I think one of the benefits maybe of being in the wilderness is that they were a little bit isolated from the influence of other people. But now they're going into the land, and they're going to be surrounded by other people groups who don't worship and revere God. So there we have in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 4 in Deuteronomy, it says, You saw no form of any kind that David the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves what? An idol. An image of any shape. And then look at the list of things that, that follow here. Whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on the earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. See, again, we're hearkening back to creation. God is the one who created all these things. Don't start worshiping them. They're the created beings, and they're the ones that we're to be God's representatives over. So don't make images as like any of those things. And then verse 19, And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed to bow down, into bowing down to them and worshiping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Now, we're going to move from Deuteronomy and get into Jeremiah 10. And some of these same topics, same things are going to be touched on again in the context of understanding God as creator of heaven and earth. But before we go there, one last uh, couple of verses in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, 39 and 40. says, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands, which I am giving you today, so that it may go what? Go well so with you. So that it may go well with you, and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. Go with his instruction, man, and read it. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? <laughs> Well, as we know, after Israel entered the land, the people struggled with idolatry. A warning we hear over and over in the, prophet, in the prophets is for Israel to turn from idolatry and return to the Lord. But why? That's why I want us to look to Jeremiah 10 now. Verses 1 through 16. Now, where, where are we in Israel's history at this point, in Jeremiah's time? Okay, the Babylonians are swooping in. And there's great threats. The people, Israel is in a bad situation. And Jeremiah 10 addressed, and Jeremiah 
10 addresses the people of Israel, warning them not to follow the ways of the nations and encouraging them not to fear idols. They are not to be dismayed by signs in the heavens as the nations are. Isn't that what we were just reading about in Deuteronomy? Let's look at uh, Jeremiah 10, the first couple verses. Hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by the signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. So, the, the peoples at this time, rather than worship Yahweh, they looked to the heavens for supernatural signs, um, and they would, they would make and worship idols. This was their way of, of managing life, so to speak. We'll, find, we'll talk a little bit more of this as we go through the passage. Verse 3, for the practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nail so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot what? They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. They can't move. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Now, what this picture here is of idols is very consistent with what we see in passages like Psalm 115, 5 through 7, Isaiah 46, 7. The depiction of idols is that they can't see, they can't speak, they can't hear, they can't move, they can't save. Therefore, when we get into uh, verses 6 through 8, we, we see the contrast between idols and the Lord God and the futility of worshiping idols. Verse 6 says, No one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? nations. So again... Israel has a, a special relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. But God is still the God of all peoples. And when peop, all peoples have turned away from God. And so Israel is to be the people of God who shows the nations what it is to have a relationship with the God who created them. That's a pretty poor job. Well... <laughs> but again, I think, you know, what is this story really about? Who is this really about? From Genesis to Revelation, who is really the, the main person? God. God himself. So even when Israel fails, who are we really learning about? Who God is. And I think that it is so important for us to realize, I think, you know, when Israel gets such a bad rap for no, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. Well, guess what? And all of humanity falls under that category. But God has chosen Israel, not because Israel, as our rabbi likes to say, was cute and cuddly or clever. Uh, God chose Israel because God chose Israel. That's right. But it's, it's in that relationship, because he has set apart these people, it is in that relationship that God reveals himself, both to Israel and to the nations around them. Because as we just read in Deuteronomy, if Israel obeys what God has said and really lives that way, the nations will notice. They will see a remarkable difference, and they'll see the intimacy that these, these people have 
with the God who created them, and guess what? Also created the nations. So, getting back into Jeremiah 10, no one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? This is your due among all the wise leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms. There is none like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols, hammered silvers brought from Tarshish, and gold from Uphaz. I don't know if I'm saying that right. What the craftsmen and the goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Then we come to verse 11. Verse 11 is the only verse that is in Aramaic. And it's still in Aramaic. <laughs> it's preserved. One of the um, uh, scholars that I read suggests that the reason why it's preserved is because of the chiastic structure in Aramaic. It says, tell them this, these gods who did not make, who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. One scholar suggests that, um, I guess it was in the, here, here we go. He says, if the Targum be any guide about this, this verse, this saying was prepared for Babylonian-bound Jews leaving, leaving Jerusalem in 597 B.C. It gives them a sharp reply in the language they would soon be speaking to those wanting them to worship the Babylonian gods. We don't know if that's really the case. It is interesting that that phrase in particular is, is preserved in Aramaic, and the point being that these gods who did not make the heavens of the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Verse 12, But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. We've seen those three words repeated from other passages, haven't we? We will see them again referred to when we get into the wisdom literature when it talks about the word of God and choosing the way of wisdom versus the way of, of falling. Verse 13, when he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Now, again, some uh, scholars suggest that these, these terms here, these elements, these phenomena, are not just randomly selected. But these are elements that the, the Canaanites attributed to their god Baal. So all of these elements, the thunders, the waters in the heavens, the clouds, the lightning and the rain, all of the, the winds, all of this have to do with fertility and agriculture. And they thought Baal was the one who was calling the shots with all these phenomena. And what Jeremiah is saying, nope, it is the Lord God who is the, the one who is control, has control over all these things. Verse 14, everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. Why? Because look at what it says. The images he makes are fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. 
it seems that what's being described here is that these idol makers are making idols that have eyes but can't see. They have a form, but they can't move. They have to be carried around. So in a sense, what they seem to be doing is mocking or aping God's creativity in creating humans who do see, who have the breath of life. Only these idol makers don't have the ability to give life to these idols. So these idols are really dead. But these idol makers are now worshiping the dead idols that they've made. And if, if we had time to look at some other passages, especially in the Psalms, it talks about those who worship idols will become like them. In what sense? If idols are dead, people who worship them will, they don't experience life because life only comes from the one true and living God who is the source and sustainer of life. And have I repeated that enough times? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just so fascinated by the consistency and how these, these ideas are unfolding in significant ways through salvation history. And God is warning us against worshiping things that there really is no life in them. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. One of the things I wanted us to do at the very end of your notes is to consider a few questions. So before we look at those questions, let me just read the contrast that we have in all these idols that are described in Jeremiah 10. What we have in Isaiah 42, verses 5 to 9. This is what, the Lord, what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, he who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things that have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. God is the one who proclaims things that will happen. Idols have no ability to do that. So as we look at these closing questions, the implications for us. In what ways do we see the need for redemption as we look around? In the world, I think we see a lot, a lot of death and destruction. It's, well, apart from the word, it's frightening to me to see how much violence and death is being, I think, Lord, was this what it was like in Genesis 6, the violence? But what about in our own lives? 
mean, you don't need to say out loud, but just reflecting on what are the areas in our own lives that we need redemption, that maybe we're looking to something else for life rather than going to the one who created us and asking him what his plan is for this brokenness. Because that's the problem. <coughs> With Yeshua, the kingdom of God came in part, but not in fullness. And we're living in this time between the already, the kingdom of God is here already, but not in its fullness. There is still the not yet that we're looking forward to when Yeshua comes back. So in this in-between time, we're still dealing with brokenness in our lives. How are we doing with that? Are we being honest with ourselves, with the Lord, and really repenting and turning from the ways that we're trying to manage our brokenness? Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking that maybe, in my, my mind, maybe we all need to, like, we don't build idols. I mean, I don't carve <coughs> idols at home, and I don't do that kind of stuff. But I, I think you know, it's just shifted. Now, what do we do? We chase, we chase things. Maybe we chase success, or maybe we, you know, it's just taken on a different form now. But those are all idols too. Yeah, I would say. I mean, what was the, the purpose of idols back in this time period? The actual physical idols. They wanted crops to grow. <laughs> they wanted food for their table. They wanted to be healed of diseases. It, it, so in the broadest sense, we still have those needs. We still want food on the table. We still, But there are other, other ways in which we seek life. We think we can get life from other things other than the Lord. And the thing about the Word of God is that it is all-encompassing, every area of our life. God is over every area of our life. There is nothing hidden from Him. And He is the one who has made us. So every, every area belongs to Him. And He is the one who can redeem those things. That's the crazy thing. We keep thinking these dead things can give us life, and they can't. But the one who made us and made all things can do that. The second question to consider, in what ways do we follow the ways of the nations rather than the way of the creator? Meaning the, the uh, unbelieving peoples of the world. You know, Israel always had to struggle there with buying into the, the thoughts, the religious practices of the nations around them who were not revering the Lord, who were not following the Lord. Well, are there ways in our lives that we tend to kind of go along with what the world seems to say about life and the way it functions rather than taking time to get deep into God's Word and seeing what He says is true about Himself and about us and about the world and about life? It can be subtle sometimes. And then the last question, what would it look like? What would it look like if we trusted the Creator to bring balance to think about. We need to close our time. Um, we pray for us. Lord, I do thank you that you are so much more than we can comprehend. Thank you that you have created us in your image and that you are the one who preserves us. 
that you want us to be your ambassadors. You want us to represent you, to show others that you really are the one true and living God through our relationship with you. God, thank you that it's not about us. It really is about you. But you do care about us. Thank you that you are personal, but you are also sovereign over all things. And there's nothing too small, there's nothing too great that we encounter that you are not able to to redeem and to bring healing and wholeness in the midst of. So, Lord, thank you for this time tonight. I pray that your word would bear fruit in our lives as you reveal yourself to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.